Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. If you grab your Bibles with me, if you would, please, and turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. There have been moments in my life when as a dad, I've sat and I've, I've watched or I've stood and I've watched my kids and I get like overwhelmed with this sensation of just, man, I'm so glad I'm their dad. You watch them do something and you're, I don't, I don't know, and I think in a good sense, you're proud of them. Do you know what I mean? And there's a phrase that we use sometimes where we say, I'm bursting with pride. Have you ever heard that phrase? Like I've had that, I've had that experience where it's like, man, there's just something inside of me and I'm just so thankful to be a part of this and honored to see this and excited for the person and I'm bursting with pride. And we use that in a good sense. But what if you really could? What if you could be so filled with pride, maybe not good pride, that it would get you to a point where you would actually like burst? Acts chapter 12, we looked at it last week. There's the story of Peter, if you remember, and there was a king at the time who was out to get the church. And in the midst of this, he throws Peter in jail. Do you remember this? First, he kills James the apostle, has him beheaded. Then he goes after Peter. Peter gets thrown in jail. And remember the miraculous thing that happens? God sends an angel. Well, let me me read it to you. Acts chapter 12, verse 7. This was last week's story. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter. The angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, the angel said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Now, we left the very end of the story out last week. We talked about Peter. We talked about him getting out of jail. But, but watch the end of the story. Verse 18, Acts chapter 12. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod, remember Herod's the king, after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. That's a serious punishment, isn't it? Not unusual in the Roman Empire that if you were a soldier and you were supposed to keep track of someone and if they escaped from you, then you would receive the punishment that was supposed to come to them. So Peter was going to be executed. So what happens to the guards? They get executed. They did a thorough search. They, they talked to the guards because either these guards had been so negligent that they allowed Peter to escape even though he was chained to two of them or maybe they were in collusion. Maybe they set him free and allowed him to escape. Nobody would have ever conceived of the fact that maybe God did this. And so Herod, the king, is infuriated. Acts chapter 12, let's go to the end of verse 19. There it says, Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Look, here's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. Some of you in high school and college, maybe you were history buffs. Maybe you enjoyed history. Others of you, it may have been some of the best sleep you got in your youth, right? I'm not sure which. We're going to do a quick history lesson. I'm going to ask you to track with me for these next few moments because what we learn in these next few minutes is critical to what we're going to see God is doing in this passage of Scripture. But you got to get the background of it. Remember that when Luke's readers read this in the first century, they knew all about Herod. They knew all about these stories. It's news to us. So we got to catch up a little bit as we read this. It tells us here that Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Doesn't mean much to us, meant a lot to them. First of all, and we saw this last week, that name Herod 
was more like a title or a last name than it was the guy's first name. His first name was Agrippa. And oftentimes in scripture, we'll hear him called Agrippa or Herod Agrippa. That's what you'll see in history. And he's got this really interesting heritage. You'll see the name Herod kind of different places throughout the New Testament. We, we talked about this last week, but let me give you just the quick snapshot. The first Herod that we see is a guy named Herod the Great, and he's the bad guy in the Christmas story. Do you remember him? Yes or no? Do you remember him? Yeah. Okay, cool. And on, a, on an icy um, February Sunday morning, a little help from you would be awesome today. All right? <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be great. Just, so I stay away. You stay away. Okay, cool. So you got Herod the Great, all right? Bad dude. Kills all the babies, Matthew chapter 2. You know the story that's there. He's, he's the granddaddy of the Herods. He has kids. One of his children is a guy named Aristobulus, who we really don't see in Scripture, but he was a son of Herod. What's interesting is Herod the Great and Aristobulus, his son, kind of got in a bit of a spat. Herod the Great felt threatened by his son, and like you would in any good family, he had him killed, right? That was the way it worked. That's dysfunction, isn't it? Now, before Aristobulus was killed, though, he had children. One of his children was a son named Agrippa, the guy who's the star of our story today. When Agrippa was three years old, his father was murdered. Agrippa then is taken to Rome. He's kind of whisked away there. And there he grows up in the inner circle of the Roman Empire. In fact, he has friends that he literally grows up with that he knows from his youth during that time who then go on to be leaders in the Roman government and Roman aristocracy in the future. That becomes really important to this story. So Herod, even though his dad's been killed and his grandpa's kind of crazy, he, he's a pretty big deal. And so he has this opportunity to run in these high-class social circles, which then leads him to be a bit of a playboy. It leads him to be pretty opinionated. He's certainly self-centered, and he got himself in a lot of financial trouble. And he had, to, he had to kind of run for his life multiple times trying to raise money to pay off his creditors. And eventually, he says something negative about the emperor at that time, and the emperor has him thrown in prison. What he said was, I wish this emperor would die so the next guy could become emperor. If you're the emperor, you're not crazy about that. So Agrippa gets thrown in prison. Guess what happens to the emperor shortly thereafter? He dies, lucky for Agrippa, and Agrippa's childhood friend, a guy named Caligula, becomes the emperor, and he says to him, hey, Grippy. That, that was his nickname, by the way. We don't know that. We don't know that. That's what I'd have called him. You know, he says, hey, Grippy, what are you doing in prison? You ought to be a king. And so he pulls him out of prison, puts him over some, some area in Judea, or not Judea yet, but actually Israel, kind of the parts that we see Galilee, lets him be the king over that area. And over the course of about three or four years, what happens is he ends up ruling over the whole territory that his grandfather, Herod the Great, had initially ruled over. So now Herod Agrippa goes from kind of exiled playboy to prisoner to great puppet king of the Roman Empire. Then... Because he wants to make the Jewish leaders happy. Remember, his whole MO was if he could keep the Jewish leaders happy, then they would be happy with him. He'd have less trouble. Guess what would make him happy? Kill some Christians. So when Peter escapes from prison, now all of a sudden, Herod's character and his credibility and his reputation are on the line. Can you imagine in the midst of this, he's a frustrated dude? And it says that he leaves Jerusalem 
and he goes to Caesarea. I can, I can tell you this. I've been to Caesarea twice, both times in the winter. It's not a bad place to go when there's freezing rain in Toledo. Can I show it to you? This is a picture that, that I took when, uh, when we were there, standing up at the top of what's called the theater, looking out at the Mediterranean. It's not a great picture, but you can see that it's a really cool place. And um, Herod Agrippa, his grandpa, Herod the Great, had built up this place called Caesarea. And there he had built a harbor. Like they, they dug out this man-made harbor. That was the best harbor in that part of the world in that time. So it became a center for commerce. So Herod built a palace there, this beautiful palace. And he built what was called a hippodrome where they could have athletic competition and race horses. And he built this, this Greek-style, Roman-style theater that was there. The picture that I took there was standing at the very top of that theater, which would, the people would sit there and watch plays or listen to speeches and look out on the Mediterranean. It's, it's a really cool place. It's an important place. Acts chapter 12, verse 20. Herod had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Now, I'll just, I'll just be honest with you. I don't know where Tyre and Sidon are, so, so I have to look at a map. And when I look at a map, I find that it's someplace really strategic. Like, like look at this map that we'll put up on the screens. In the very center, you see Judea, and you see Jerusalem up there. That's actually just me uh, right there, but there you go. Okay, so you've got, you've got Jerusalem there in the middle. It's all a part of a kingdom called Judea. We've looked at this before. You go up to Caesarea, and then do you see Tyre and Sidon up there? They're not in Judea. They're in a place called Phoenicia. And that's a place that Herod is not the king over. So it's like, in a certain sense, almost like another country. So these are foreigners who are dependent on the people in Judea to grow their food because they're not able to do it in the same way. That's not new. This, this goes back all the way past the time of King Solomon. We read things about this in the Old Testament. So this is something that has happened. For some reason, we don't clearly know why, Herod and the rulers of Tyre and Sidon are quarreling, and they want, and this is significant, they want an audience with him. They want to come and, and talk to him. They want to ask him for a favor. They want to negotiate. They want to work this thing out. And part of what they would do in that day is you would go to a place that was very public. You, you might even go to a public event and in that spot, you would stand in front of that king and you would make your request known. Because if there's all these other people there, it not only holds the king accountable, but he might do what will make other people happy, which might work in your favor. Does that make sense? So instead of you just negotiating one-on-one, -on -one, you've got peer pressure in that moment. So the people from Tyre and Sidon, we believe, were going to come and stand before Herod and they were going to ask him for a favor. This means this, that Herod held the cards. They had unmet needs, and he could have a power play. He was the king, and they were coming to him. They were trying to work through this guy, Blastus, who was basically kind of like the second in command. He was the closest guy to the king. They're trying to work with him, kind of win some favor. There's a famine going on. We read that in Acts chapter 11. So, so people need food. Herod's sitting pretty in a place of power in this moment. Acts chapter 12, verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne, 
and delivered a public address to the people. Acts chapter 12 is, is not the only place where we read about this story. You, you may have heard us mention from time to time a, a Jewish historian from the first century whose name was Josephus. Josephus was commissioned by the Roman Empire to write a history of the Jews. And so he wrote about this in, in what he wrote. And he tells us that this happened in the theater, what we talked about there. We'll show you another picture here in just a minute. Happened in the theater during a time when, when something was going on where people were coming together to have these celebrations to honor the emperor. We're, we're not sure whether they were athletic contests. Many people speculate that it was a big celebration that came together for the emperor's birthday where people would come and celebrate. The emperor wasn't there, but, but this was kind of the center of their culture at that time. So during this time, on, on this appointed day, and the people from Tyre and Sidon are coming, and there's people filling this theater, Herod comes out, and he sits on his throne. Here's a, here's a picture of what that theater would have looked like in some sense. This is the, the group that we were with from Calvary, and we're stepping back. My back is, is to the Mediterranean, and I'm looking up, and you see that kind of amphitheater type thing up there? This is a big place. You got all these rows, and this is, this is seated up here with the people in our group. And if you look down, you can kind of see the floor of the amphitheater where, where stages would be and plays would happen and people would speak. And then do you see the guy kind of on the, on the center right? He's got his hands up in the air. Can you see that? Can, can you see that? Okay, cool. That's Dr. Nunnally who was with us a few weeks ago. And he's teaching us there. And he's standing at right about the spot where Herod's throne would be. Herod would have been front and center. So that when people were performing or speaking, or when the people from Tyre and Sidon would have come and stood there on the floor of that stage, they would have looked right up at him. People would have seen him because he would have been in the very center. And it says that he came in, and he gave a great speech, and he wore, and this is, this is really a cool part of the story, he wore his royal robes. Josephus tells us more about these royal robes. Let, let me read to you a little bit, and again, this is kind of ancient sounding English to us, but, but listen to what they say here. Talking about this event, it says, at which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons and such as were of dignity through his province. On the second day of which shows he put on a garment, so he said Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. Here's, here's what it's saying. Herod comes out in a silver suit, made of silver, sits down on his throne, the sun comes up over the back of this theater. It shines down on him. And the only thing I can think of to describe it is his suit turns into a disco ball, right? Like, just, like the light just pops out of him. And people are like, what is that? And he gives this speech. They're like, who is that? And it has this effect on them so much so that look at verse 22. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. They were pretty impressed in that moment. His suit's shining, his voice is caring, he's speaking with authority. You're divine, Herod. Do you think he liked that? Yes or no? Verse 23, 
immediately because Herod did not give praise to God. An angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms. I'm going to read that again. <laughs> and he was eaten by worms and died. Now do you know why I titled this sermon, Bursting with Pride? There's only two times in the New Testament, they're both in Acts chapter 12, where it talks about an angel striking someone. An angel struck Peter, and, and believe me, Luke's contrasting something here. Do you remember when the angel struck Peter? He struck Peter in order to, anybody? Wake him up. Why? Because he was delivering him. Now an angel comes and strikes Herod. Why? To bring the destruction that Herod brought on himself. We, we don't know exactly what it was that physically killed Herod, whether some, some speculate maybe it was like an appendicitis or that there was some kind of cyst that maybe burst inside of him. Maybe he had roundworms, which is pleasant to think about. Here's what we know. It's probably not the first time that Herod would fill with pride, but God said, I'm not doing this anymore. You've, you've pushed it too far. This whole thing was the straw that broke the Herod's back. <laughs> and he immediately, it says... You read this in Josephus and in, in Acts. He immediately has this stomach condition. And what Luke doesn't tell us is they took Herod Agrippa from the theater, rushed him over to the palace that his grandfather had built. This really just steps away. Took him into a room where he laid in agony for five days. And then he died. I don't know physically what killed him, but I can tell you what happened to him. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. What happened to Herod? He burst with pride. Now, there's, there's three things I want you to see from this story, and we're just going to hit this real quick. And thanks for tracking on the history side, because it's, it's going to be really important as we go through this. But here's the first thing that I think God would have us to learn from this story today. Number one, Relational pride leads to personal pain. Relational pride leads to personal pain. This, this whole thing about the people from Tyre and Sidon who are coming to Herod asking for food, Josephus never tells us about it. And the truth is, it's really not that important to the story, right? What's the story? The story is people think Herod's a god. Herod likes it. He dies. They don't show up in the story again. So why does Luke go to great lengths to tell us about the people from Tyre and Sidon? He's setting the stage for us here because there's something that he wants us to see. Think about what's going on in Herod's world. He just had Peter escape. Now he's going to Caesarea. He's frustrated. He's in a season of transition. Now these people show up from Tyre and Sidon. They're quarreling. There's fighting. There's drama. There's, there's this conflict that's happening. People start picking sides. They're trying to get Blastus on their side. When Blastus is on Herod's side, they're trying to get people to be mediaries and, and pull people to their side or another side. You've got people from Tyre and Sidon saying that, that there's unmet needs. You've got Herod who has a hidden agenda. You've got them that has a hidden agenda. You've got Herod with power plays in the midst of this. All these things that are fitting in, the conflict, the drama, the, the dysfunction in all of this. Does it sound like anybody's family you know? This doesn't just happen to Herod. This is the same kind of stuff that happens in your relationships, in my relationships, where you have these times where there's tension 
and there's conflict, and there's unmet needs, and there's power plays. Happy Valentine's Day, <laughs> right? This is real live stuff. This isn't just happening governmentally in the first century. This may have happened yesterday in the home of somebody you know. It's a part of life. Family, work, friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouses. You have these moments where you have this kind of tension. Now, it's important for us to know relational tension is a part of life, right? I mean, it just happens. There's these times where there is conflict, where there is frustration. Relational tension is a part of life, and how you handle it will make all the difference. Now, we know this, that in the midst of this relational tension, history tells us that the pride that Herod had did him in. So maybe in the midst of my relational tension. I need to take a good look at this idea of pride because what did Herod in must have been fueled by that self-centeredness that we know he had really his whole life. So what does scripture tell us? Well, look at this, James chapter three, verse 16. It says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, does that sound like pride, envy and selfish ambition? For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. What it says here is that pride poisons relationships. When I'm envious, when I have selfish ambition, it literally brings in disorder. It brings in confusion. It invites evil into the relationship so much so that it can poison it and destroy that thing. If your number one concern is getting what you want, if the only thing you're interested in in a relationship is your needs, then maybe it's time to take a good look at this issue of pride. I, I see it happen frequently. I, I see it happen all the time where people go, well, my needs aren't just being met, or they didn't treat me right, or I, I wasn't treated with respect, or it just wasn't the right thing. And I have to be careful because when I start feeling that way, I've got to go, is that legitimate or is that pride? Like, is that me just wanting what I want? Because that relational pride can destroy your relationship. Next Next week is Valentine's Day, so it's, it's probably good for us to maybe park here for just a minute. You know, sometimes I'll hear people say that marriage is 50-50, and I don't buy that for a minute. Marriage isn't 50-50. I think it's 100-100, right? Because I'm not just giving half to you and hoping that I get something back. The point is I give all of myself to you in that relationship, and you give all of yourself to me in that relationship. And the beauty of that is that when that happens... The beauty of that is that not only do I find that I'm able to serve you and love you and give myself fully to you, but when you do that back to me, then in those moments, our needs are met. That's, that's the whole point of that relationship, that we give fully of ourselves to each other. Now, I can't speak for anybody else, but I can tell you what usually keeps me from that full 100%. Anybody ever heard of pride? It comes in, not just in the marriage relationship, but in every relationship. What do you do in those times? Well, there's a, there's a passage that I think every time we talk about things like this, we come back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It's, it's so significant. Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Do you see what he said here is, is key? 
humility is a key to healthy relationships. Humility is a key to healthy relationships. Look, you, you may have been done wrong, and this might not have been right. Maybe it needs fixed, and maybe you need to have a kind of a, a, a head-to-head conversation. Maybe you need to bring this thing to the forefront. I don't know what it is, but just make sure you do it with humility. Because when humility is out of the picture, it just destroys the situation. At some point, maybe the best thing you need to do is actually stop and listen to the other person. Maybe you humble yourself enough, not that you're wrong and they're right. We get hung up on that so many times. But what if you humbled yourself enough to actually see it from their perspective? What if you treated them with respect? What if you were the first one to apologize? What if you chose to serve the other person instead of trying to serve your own interests? What what if you surprised them with your servant's heart? What if you prayed for them? And I found this to be really significant. And if I've got conflict with somebody, the way that I should pray is not, dear God, would you just help them to see how wrong they are and how right I am? <laughs> you know what I have to pray? Lord, there's, there's conflict in this situation. And if there's something wrong in my heart, God, will you show me? Because otherwise, it's pride. Humility is key. How do we know? First Peter chapter 5, Peter writes, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Isn't it cool what Peter said there about who's right and who's wrong? Do you see what he said? Nothing. He just said, humble yourself. Look, I I don't know what the situation that that you're in is, but can I just challenge you with this? If you find yourself in some kind of relational tension, if you're in a place where there's like this this crazy cycle of, of, of tension and conflict, be the first to humble yourself. Be the first one to choose to humble yourself, to make that move, to take that step to offer the apology, to ask for forgiveness. If you, if you were to come to the church one day during the week while during office hours, maybe you had, uh, had something you're dropping off or, or maybe you had an appointment with somebody and, and you came up, you'd find that we have all the doors of the building locked because it's, it's a big building and we don't want people just kind of wandering in and, and walking around and doing stuff and there's a lot of different things going on. So if you come to the building, all the doors are locked. Now you can come in, you just got to come to the front door and when you come to the front door, there's a, there's a button that you push. It's a little buzzer. And then, and then the receptionist or one of our staff members is able to push a button on this side that you can talk to each other. And then they, they unlock the door so that you can come in. So if you come up to the church someday and instead of pushing the button, you just start pounding on the glass outside the connection center, we're probably not going to let you in. If you stand out there and just yell at us, we're going to call mommy's finest. That's just the way it works, right? Because that's not, that's not how the communication works. And if I stand inside and I just try making faces at you or I just yell at you, right, are we going to be able to communicate? No, it's just going to be frustrating. You know what has to happen? Somebody has to push the button. And, and, and somebody's got to push the button on the outside to say, hey, can I come in? And somebody on the inside has got to push the button and open the door. Then you can have a conversation. 
then, then you can have something in, in the sense of relationship in that moment. But as long as you're on one side of the glass and I'm on the other side of the glass, that relationship's not going to happen. Somebody just has to push the button. And some of you, with your spouse or with your family or with a friend or something in your history, you've got people that you've been on either side of the glass with for years. Does that make sense? And you're pounding on the glass and you're yelling at each other in between. And at some point, you know what it's going to take? Just somebody push the button so that we can communicate, so that we can open the door, so that this relationship can move forward. But if you're too prideful, I'm sorry, it wouldn't be you. If they're too prideful <laughs> to push the button, that's never going to happen. Choose humility. Humble yourself. Don't have a Herod heart. Be the first to push the button. Why is that so important? Look, look at the second thing in this story. Number two, self-promotion breeds self-destruction. And we could park here for a long time, but let's just, let's just call self-promotion kind of a, an outflow of pride in our lives. And look, I, I know there's things that, that you have to communicate, and especially if you're in a business environment or something like that. But at some point, if you are the center of everything, then maybe you need to take a step back because self-promotion can have a tendency to do things inside of us that we're just not built to handle. And self-promotion breeds self-destruction. Let's talk about this from Herod's vantage point again. Go back, to, go back to Josephus and what he wrote about this story. It tells us this, that all these flatterers were there, and they've watched Herod kind of light up like a disco ball. And it says, and presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man... Yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Superior to mortal nature. Sounds like a Marvel movie, doesn't it? What Herod do? Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. You know what that means? He said, no, please tell me more. He liked it. They called him a god. And he said, you know, you might just be right. It felt really good to him until that little worm thing that happened, right? What do we learn from this? Look, we learn that in those moments when we get so caught up in promoting ourselves, it leads us down a path that leads us to destruct ourselves. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Remember where it said that, that Herod did not give praise to God? Remember that language, did not give praise to God. Look what Paul says in Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Sounds like Herod, doesn't it? And what happened? Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. When pride comes in, it causes me to focus more on what I do not have than what I have. It causes me to want what isn't mine to have, and it makes me ungrateful. And an ungrateful heart sows seeds of self-destruction. I mean, that's exactly what happened to Herod. 
And if your relationships or if your life or if you live kind of day to day thinking about what you don't have or what you wish you had, maybe it's time to take a good look at your life and watch this. Because as soon as I let pride come in, it has this devastating effect. Herod did not give praise to God, but took it for himself. And when you worship something other than God, you make that thing, anybody, you make it an idol. And Herod made an idol out of himself. And when we make an idol of ourselves, we make an enemy of God. When we make an idol of ourselves, we make an enemy of God. Well, this is a fun sermon for a snowy day, isn't it? 1945, the World War II ended. A bunch of the soldiers were coming home, and, and some of the American soldiers had played Major League Baseball. So they had been gone, and now they were going to come back and rejoin their teams. One of the most famous was Joe DiMaggio. And he got back to Yankee Stadium, and he wasn't there to play yet. He'd just kind of gotten back, and so he was there for a game. And he took his little four-year-old son, Joe Jr., and took him, and they snuck into a mezzanine level, and he wanted to just kind of sit there and watch the game, just kind of enjoy the game and check things out. And he's sitting there with his son, but it didn't take long for somebody to recognize him, right? They're like, that's Joe DiMaggio. And word starts to spread, and eventually, like, the whole stands begins to cheer. Joe, 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 DiMaggio, Joe, Joe, Joe. And they start chanting his name over and over again, you know, and he kind of is, is kind of trying to, you know, just be kind of kind and stuff and this kind of thing. And all of a sudden, his little four-year-old son, Joe Jr., goes, look, Dad, everybody knows me. <laughs> they thought, he thought, it was for him when the glory really belonged to his father. Does that make sense? How many times do I think it's all about me? That I did it. That it's my strength. It's my talent. It's my ability. And actually, it really all came from my father. And if I start focusing too much here, that self-promotion becomes self-destruction. Why, why is that so important to know? Number three, last thing, let me show you real briefly here. Number three, what is in you is what will come out of you. If you're filled with pride, that's what's going to come out of you. If you don't watch this, if you don't gauge this, if you don't take time to actually think about it, because our default mode probably is to slip more pride than humility, Right? So if we're not careful about this, we, we've got we've to guard our hearts. Here's what Jesus said, Luke chapter 6, verse 43. He, he was talking about how this works. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. What's inside of you is what's going to come out of you. So know that the state of your heart is set by what you store in your heart. The state of your heart, who you are, is going to be set by what you store in your heart. So if you're constantly thinking about how you've been done wrong, if, if you're constantly trying to figure out how you can promote yourself, 
If you're constantly concerned about what other people think or how your needs are going to be met or how much power or authority you can have, if you're storing that up in your heart, just like Herod, eventually it's going to catch up to you. What is in you is going to come out of you. And it's not the first time Herod had pride. But like we said, this, this was when God said, that's it. That's the last straw. That breaks the Herod's back. Because he had the heart of a Herod like his grandpa, like his uncles. It's interesting. There's nowhere else in literature that you hear him referred to the way that Luke does so consistently as Herod. Typically, he's called Agrippa. Why does Luke do this? Because Luke doesn't want you to forget his family line. Just like grandpa, just like dad, just like my uncles. I've got the heart of a Herod, Agrippa had to know. That's what did him in. Have you searched your heart? Like, Like what's going on in your heart? Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. How do you guard your heart? How, how, do, you, how do you safeguard against pride, and that selfish ambition, that, that, that envious spirit that James talked about? The author of Psalms says, Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's times when we've just got to say, God, would you search my heart? Lord, show me if there's anything in there that's wrong. And just to be completely honest with you, I'm finding that I kind of have to do that just about every day. (laughs) Where I got to go, God, is my heart right about this? Because my default mode can be pride. And so I've got to say, God, help my heart. Search my heart. I don't want the heart of a Herod. I want the mind of Christ. God, I want to see things the way that you do. Why is this so critically important? When I was working on this message, there was this song by a guy named Steve Taylor that I remember listening to in the 80s. And there was this line that just kept going over and over in my head. He said, if you don't die to yourself, Pride kills. You better deal with it. Because if you don't, it's going to catch up to you. If you don't die to yourself, pride will get you. You'll be bursting with pride. One last, one last interesting kind of story about Herod. Um, when his friend Caligula became the emperor, Herod was living in Rome. Agrippa was living in Rome. And he was known for throwing lavish banquets. So he had, this, he had this big party. And Caligula, who was the emperor, came to it. And um, as Agrippa was throwing this great party, the emperor got a, little bit, uh, got a little bit drunk. And he didn't want to be outdone by Herod in generosity. And so he went to him and he said, Agrippa, this is a great party. He said, what can I do for you? Anything you ask, anything you want, you can have it. He expected him to ask for like authority or for like territory or for more power. What he asked for completely surprised him. See, the emperor had gotten in a little spat with some of the Jewish people and he wanted to prove to them that he was in charge and they weren't. So what he did was he had a statue of himself built and this this statue, this idol of himself, he had it placed right in the temple in Jerusalem, which is the holy place where only God should be worshiped. Can you imagine how happy that made the Jewish people? 
They were furious about it. And so in that moment, the emperor says, Agrippa, anything you want, it's yours. You can have it. What do you want? And you know what he said? He said, Emperor, I know this is a big ask, but do you think we could not put that statue in the temple? He knew deep down inside of his heart that worship only belonged, that praise only belonged, that all power, that true kingship only belonged to one person, and that was God. And you know what the emperor did? Because it was asked publicly, he had to honor that request. And the statue came down. That was to be in the temple. Herod knew who really deserved the praise. Fast forward this thing about three or four years later, and Herod's sitting on the throne in Caesarea at the theater, and the sun's shining at his back, and his disco ball is bursting. And people look at him and say, you're a god. Now he has to make a choice for himself. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? That he had identified who the one true god was, and now he's in this place where he has to choose for himself. Am I God? Or is God really the king? The question you have to ask in the midst of those prideful moments, who's really the king in your life? And I want to invite you just to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And just to, to think, as we've talked about relational issues, We've talked about our, our tendency to self-promote. We've talked about what we put inside of ourselves. Maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and saying, who's really the king in your life? Is it you? God wants to know, is it me? Who ultimately is your Lord? Is it Jesus or is it yourself? What do you do with this thing called pride? Maybe even to the point that for some of you, today's a day where for the very first time, you've got to say, God, I give you leadership. I, I give you lordship in my life. I know that on my own, it's just going to lead to a path of disappointment and frustration, maybe even destruction. But today I need to surrender my pride, to choose humility, and make sure that you're the king in my life. Holy Spirit, we thank you that, that you speak to us through your word. But God, I know for many of us, you're also speaking to us by your spirit. Lord, you're challenging us, you're stretching us in this moment. God, would you bring a sense of your presence and of the work that only you can do? Lord, may we not have the heart of a Herod, but may we allow you to be the king of our lives and of our hearts. Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Would you send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.